welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford and Woking in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. So I've been um, away this week and it's been uh, wonderful, I've been had the incredible privilege of travelling with some of our church members, uh, David Yegnazar and, and others. Uh, and uh, we've been working with uh, Iranian leaders who are being used very powerfully by God and are paying an enormous price uh, to do so. And I've been blown away by their life-changing stories, really extraordinary people. I'm going to share one or two today. But it's remarkable timing because today we are launching this new seven-part series. It's a major series in which we are going to be looking at the life of an Iranian leader who was used very powerfully by God and paid an enormous price uh, for that. I'm talking, of course, of of Nehemiah. And this series, we're going to think together about rebuilding the city and uh, hence the bricks. Uh, And, um, you know, I'm excited about this because it's going to be a chance for us to work systematically through a book of the Bible. Uh, Often we're thematic in our preaching here, but we're going to, you know, go through the chapters in a systematic way and listen to the Word of God. And I'm also excited because it's just a really great story uh, that is very relevant, very challenging uh, for us as individuals and very relevant to us as a church at this time. So let's just give you a little bit of an overview as we're beginning the journey, and then we'll, we'll look at Nehemiah chapter 1. First of all, the year is 586 BC, and the Babylonian army has invaded uh, and has captured Jerusalem. It has destroyed uh, Solomon's temple that's been standing there for 400 years, the heart of the Jewish um, spirituality and national identity. They have burnt down the city and they have forced the inhabitants of Jerusalem to walk a thousand miles across the desert. It is an utterly dispiriting moment that they have been taken into exile back in Babylonia. Perhaps one of the great images of that moment is that their own king is blinded, eyeballs gouged out, shackled, walking in their midst. They have been utterly humiliated. Their their past is destroyed. Their future is slavery. Here is the people whose very identity is we're the ones who God rescued from slavery and they're being sent back into slavery. So this is also a moment not just of great terror but of sensing God, you have forsaken us. Our God has abandoned us. Us. Fast forward a century, and the people of Israel are still in Babylonia. They're still living out in a foreign land, seeking to hold on to their faith. We read parts of the Old Testament by the rivers of Babylon. We sat down and wept by the rivers of Babylon. It's in the Bible. There we wept. You understand? I mean, that's why they're weeping. And, and, and um, 
and here we are a century on, and Nehemiah is an Israelite. It's not just he's lived his whole life uh, in, in the Persian Empire, but I'm guessing it was his great-grandparents that were in that terrible caravan, uh, th- uh, walking those thousand miles. Uh, and and um, so he's heard the stories. But he, like many Israelites, has risen up to great prominence in the Babylonian culture. In fact, he's become cupbearer to the king. Now, that sounds a little archaic, but it was incredibly uh, significant because, as you probably know, the cupbearer to the king was the person who stopped the king getting poisoned. Uh, would often have a little swig of the wine just to make sure that it, you know, it, was, it was all right. And so you didn't become cupbearer to the king unless you were supremely trusted. If you wanted to kill the king, the best way you could do it is try and persuade the cupbearer to, to you know, come over to your side and then a tiny bit of poison, job done. And so he is not just in a very high position in the royal household at all the meals, but he is one of the most trusted. And then news reaches Nehemiah of the desolate state of the land of his fathers. It's impoverished inhabitants and his heart is broken. And he determines to do all that he can to rebuild the city. And the story of Nehemiah is the story of how he does that against incredible odds. In fact, he rebuilds the walls of the city in 52 days with enemies attacking them. And then he goes about repopulating Jerusalem. And then with Ezra, he leads a revival. This is relevant to us for so many reasons. Our vision as a church is not just to build a great church, but to help build a great city. We want to see great families, great businesses, great schools, great universities, great football clubs. We want to see the city Prosper because God is at the heart of it. And so just as Nehemiah is committing to build a great city, so we are called to do that. It's also relevant to us, of course, because we're, we're really thinking very seriously about buildings, about finding a home for us as a church. And so this is a story about how prayer and the very practical stuff of building fits together. I remember when uh, Emmaus started, we were just a handful of people. We had about five people in the youth group. And uh, we, we, could, we, did, we could, didn't have any you know, paid staff members or anything like that. In fact, we certainly didn't have a, a youth worker. And so we just shared it around. And I used to love it when it was my turn to do the youth work. But it's very, I think we had about three boys and two girls. And I think two of the boys were our sons, Hudson and Danny. And then there was a, a boy called Felix. And I mean, I remember Hudson coming back one day saying he'd fallen out with Felix. And like, the church has split, you know. It, it, was, it was serious. But I got very excited. There were, there were incriminating photographs of me with tea towels on my head on our kitchen table doing youth work and all the rest of it. And I'd pour everything I'd ever learnt, all my creative juices into these five young people. It was really my favourite thing. And then what I, I topped it. One, one week I just, I reached my zenith. Um, it was the story of the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. 
And I had this brilliant idea. You're going to like this. I got one of the boys to, to, to lie like a dead body on some butcher paper. And we drew around his body. So, you know, like in the movies where you have like the shape of the corpse. And we hung it up on the wall. And I got tomato ketchup sachets from Burger King. And we taped the sachets to different parts of the body. And then I hand out eggs. Not just a few, a lot of eggs. And I said, now, let, let, let's throw them. At, at, at Stephen, and if you hit a sachet, you're going to make him bleed. And so the kid, they're loving it. They're like, love it. And eventually, one of the parents came out and said, But what are you doing? You're teaching our children to kill Christians. And I realized, I sort of, yeah, it was just great. It was, it was a great activity, but it didn't actually make the correct point. We've come a long way from those days. Uh, and, and I guarantee your, your, your children are, are not being uh, taught how to kill Christians this morning. And uh, so we, we, we've come along, but, but, but is this it? Do we just go, oh, this is great. You know, lots of people, lots of stuff happening. No, our vision is not to build a great church. Our vision is to build a great city. We can't get comfortable because to use the language from Nehemiah, the walls of our city are broken down. Other churches are still struggling. That is our problem, not just theirs. Our nation is bitterly divided. The poor in our region are getting poorer right now, whilst the rich get richer. By the way, whatever happens economically with Brexit, as and when it happens, it's going to be very good news for certain types of rich people and incredibly bad news for certain poor people. That's not a political statement. That's just a statement of economic fact. Maybe long term it'll pick up and be better. So I'm not trying to be positional on that. But things are serious in our nation. 30% of people in our region are living below the poverty level. We live in an area of the country with one of the highest divorce uh, rates in the country. Children all around us are growing up without a father. I talk to teachers and social workers and nurses and police officers in this church and the stories they tell me about what they're doing through the week are just heartbreaking. And then we are in the continent of Europe where the church is the only continent in which the church is in decline. We live at a time where the walls of the city are broken down. Many of our leaders politically are in chaos. It was wonderful actually, three weeks ago, uh, a, 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 a gentleman came up to me at the end of the evening service and he said, I've just been elected a borough councillor. I'm in shock, you know, I, I only was persuaded to stand five weeks ago, I'm a borough councillor, just, you know, and he said there are five committed Christians, I think it's four or five committed Christians who suddenly have been elected onto the council. I said, have you got a business card? He said, don't, don't be ridiculous, I don't have anything yet, I'm just trying to work out how to do this, but pray for me. And, and, and so we're committed to this. Um, Abraham Kuyper, who uh, was a former Dutch prime minister, said this, there is not a square inch of domain of our human existence, over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, it is mine. Jesus is passionate not just about the church, but about families and streets and businesses and political systems and so on. And so Nehemiah speaks right into that. How do you rebuild a broken city?
So uh, we're going to read Nehemiah chapter 1 together. And uh, if you're able to do so, could you stand out of respect for the reading of God's word? Thank you. The words of Nehemiah, this is Nehemiah 1 verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the uh, province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins that we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws that you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Da 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 da. Please be seated. Nehemiah was successful, he was comfortable, he was well-connected, he was living in, and I quote a historian, a fine Persian city noted for its opulence and prosperity, magnificent buildings and spacious gardens. But God begins to stir Nehemiah's heart for the plight of others. He begins to sense that God has something else for him. And it's the beginning of a process that will change everything for Nehemiah and for the people of Israel. For Nehemiah, it's going to mean a change of job from the dignified and trusted role of a palace steward to becoming a building site manager. From living in a cultured and comfortable capital city to living in a desolate and dangerous backwater. It's possible even as we go through this series that God may draw close to you and challenge you. This is going to be a challenging series and I don't really apologize for that. And, and it may be that you are comfortable and life is pretty much together. 
and you maybe are well connected, maybe you have resources, maybe you're living in a nice house, but maybe the Holy Spirit is going to draw close to you and start to lay things on your heart that are not just about praying slightly more emotional prayers, but are going to massively disrupt your future. That's what happens here. Maybe you're saying, look, I know God has blessed me, I'm comfortable, but what's it for? Maybe there's a particular place, a particular people, a new direction that God has for you. Maybe God is calling you to use your resources, your position, your connections, your skills for some new cause, rather than just making some company slightly more profitable. It's very interesting to me that Nehemiah's name means Yahweh comforts. Yahweh comforts. And God is going to use Nehemiah to comfort the people of Israel. In fact, when they return from exile, Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort my people. But before God can comfort the Israelites through Nehemiah, Nehemiah himself has to be discomforted. It's often been said that God comes to us and what he does is he comforts the afflicted and he afflicts the comfortable. If you're here today and you're afflicted, you're desperate, you're worried, you're scared, you're under it, you're struggling in life, I've good news for you. God wants to comfort you. We as a church will do anything we can to comfort you. If, if you need marriage counseling, We'll help you. Talk to Bill. If you need money, we'll, we'll get you some money. If you need, uh, uh, there's a few weights and measures, but, you know, we'll get you some money. Uh, we're, we're, you know, it, we're, it's not like ATM, but, you know. Uh, it, you know, if, 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 you, if you're struggling in any way, we are here to bring the comfort of Jesus Christ into your life. But if you're here and you're saying, do you know what? <clears throat> I'm pretty comfortable. I shop at Ikea. I choose Waitrose over Tesco's. <laughs> God help us. <laughs> I am excited about my new Flymo. You know, if that's, I'm comfortable. I've got some news for you. God is also in the business, not just of comforting the afflicted, but afflicting the comfortable. He is disruptive. He is a disruptive technology. He is a challenging God. He is a provoker of comfortable hearts. John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard Network of Churches, wrote this. The economy of the kingdom of God is quite simple. Every new step in the kingdom costs us everything that we have gained to date. Every new step may cost us all the reputation and security that we have accumulated to that point. The disciple is always ready to take the next step. If there is anything that characterizes Christian maturity, it is the willingness to become a beginner again for Jesus Christ. It is the willingness to put our hand in his hand and say, I'm scared half to death, Lord, but I'll go with you. I'll risk everything to go with you. You are the pearl of great price. Nehemiah must have felt like that. I'm scared half to death, Lord. I don't really want to go back to the beginning again. I, I've got a fly mo, you know. I shop at Waitrose. But God, I'm a disciple. You're calling me onwards.
you know, um, spending time with these Iranian leaders and seeing the extraordinary way thousands are coming to know Jesus. I mean, I have to be careful what I'm saying because this is recorded and I have to be even more careful on social media. I just genuinely, so many things I can't tell you, but it is unbelievable what is happening. Every mealtime this last week, I had someone else tell me their story of how Jesus had come into their lives, often through dreams and visions, and the incredible price they're paying. And I want to tell you, I've come back deeply challenged, my comfort deeply afflicted by their stories. And uh, it's hard to pick one, but I'm just going to tell you one. I'm going to tell you the story of a, a man called Farshid, and uh, uh, we've got a picture of him to, to come up on, on, on the screen here. Um, some of you will recognize Farshid because when he was in prison, we prayed a lot for him. Have we got the picture? It's, uh, oh, we haven't. I want you to imagine a man called Farshid. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know... Um, he was, in, he was a pastor of a church in a particular city in Iran. And one Christmas day at six in the morning, the police came to arrest members of the church. So it's exactly like, actually, their church is about a similar number to the number in this auditorium right now at that time. And um, someone's SIM card has got out. All your numbers have gone. And 6 a.m. Christmas morning, the doorbell goes and you're arrested. And so they're all taken to, to prison just for being followers of Jesus. And um, interestingly, Farshid, who's the pastor, uh, he happened to be staying with some other church members on Christmas Eve night. And so when the police came, they arrested the couple whose house it was and said, well, who are you? And he just said, I'm staying with these people. And they said, oh, well, you better get out of here. <laughs> you don't want to hang around with these Christians. So he, he left and they didn't realize they'd kind of released the main leader. And he thought, what do I do now? And so he took his kids to school, two-year-old and a five-year-old. Muslim country, it's not a day off. And he gave his kids extra long hugs that morning. It's hard to let go of them. He said to his five-year-old, I want you to never forget that I love you. And I don't know what the future holds. And one day you will understand. And... Uh, she said, it's, it's okay, Daddy, and walked into school. He then realized, I can make a break for it. I'm pretty sure I can get across the border into Turkey. And then he, God spoke to him, John chapter 10. The hired hand shepherd just abandons the flock, but the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And he thought, I'm not just doing this as a job. It's not about the money. I'm doing this because... I want to lay down my life for the sheep. And so he destroyed his SIM card, threw away his phone, and went to the police and handed himself in when he could have escaped. They said, why have you handed yourself in? He said, because I've done nothing wrong. They put him in prison for over five years. The first several months, he was in solitary confinement in a tiny little cell, just long enough to lie down in. He said every night, he slept on the concrete floor. One of the people who was arrested that night was Ladan. She was a member of his church. Ladan is, is often, she's part of this church. She's often here. Uh, and he said, you know, in those cells, your toilet, there's an open toilet, it's just by the door. 
and there's a window so there's a light angle to shine just where your head will be when you're trying to sleep at night and you have to choose whether you want to sleep with a spotlight on your face or if you want shadows you have to put your head by your toilet and get the smell and and he said he spent a little while saying to God why have you put me in here I was being useful for you out there I can't do anything in here and then God spoke to him and said Fashid I've come through four locked doors and over all these walls to spend time alone with you. And this is about you and me having time together. So he began to turn his solitary confinement into prayer and worship. He said sometimes he was so filled with the joy of the Lord, he would just dance in his cell. And the guards would come in and say, why are you happier than us? Eventually they released him into a part of the prison where he was with other prisoners. And he began to tell them about the Lord. In fact, they asked him to pray for them. And he didn't know if it was a trick because some of them were Taliban and it could well have made his sentence worse. But he thought, I'm a servant of Jesus. You know, as he's telling me these stories, I feel ashamed about the times that I don't tell people about Jesus. Just I'm a little worried that what they might think. And here he is choosing to talk about Jesus to people, knowing it might extend his prison sentence. So challenging, isn't it? And, and he said, as he told them the Bible stories, he said, will you write these down? And they stole a pen from the interrogator. And, they, uh, and they, they made paper from the wrapping of their soap that they were given. And he began to write out Bible stories. And for years, he led this little church in this prison. And then eventually, he was released. And he found out his wife had escaped to Canada with their two kids. And because he doesn't have papers, he's now in Turkey, he doesn't have papers, they don't have papers, he's not seen his kids for eight and a half years. The two-year-old is, is now a ten-year-old boy. The daughter's a teenager. And he told me with tears in his eyes, every night I dream of seeing my kids again what it will be like when I meet them at the I'm sitting there thinking the price this man has paid one of the talks I did some of you will have heard I do a talk uh, about God on mute and the times in life where God doesn't seem to answer our prayer we feel disappointed with God we feel angry with God I thought this is going to be really helpful for a room full of people who, who who've had gone through such terrible things so many of them been in prison so many of them been interrogated paid an unbelievable price and so I did the talk at the end. Fashid comes up to me. He says, Pastor Pete, will you pray for me? I said, sure. Why? He said, because he said, I, I know many of the old characters in the Bible are disappointed with God, angry with God. They question God. I hear your story. I understand you often feel like that too. He said, but I, there's something wrong with me. I, I, I'd never felt disappointed with God. I, I, I'd never been angry. I, I just feel joy and hope. So I looked at him and said, I will not pray for you. Pray, pray for me. Minister to me. You spend time, you eat a meal with these people, you think the world is not worthy of them. God comes to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And we see here Nehemiah's heart being broken, his comfort being afflicted. And look at how he prays. I should just say, you know, I talked to another couple. They've both been put in prison for their faith in solitary. Interestingly, when she was being interrogated, she said to me, they told me that my husband had converted back to Islam and, uh, and that most of the church members had. 
And they said, what about you? And she said, even if I'm the only one, I will not return to Islam. I'm a follower of Jesus. And then after a while, they allowed her 10 minutes with her husband to talk. It was part of their psychological warfare. And he said to me, he said, my wife's first question to me was not, how are you, darling, or I love you. It was, are you a Muslim now? <laughs> that couple are now in California. They had to move there for their own safety. They've been given protected status. And she said something to me. There was no edge to this. She just said, I don't understand the Christians in my church in California. They, they go to church. They, read, they do Bible studies. But she said they... They don't seem to tell people about Jesus. I don't understand. I, we, we even put in prison for this. Yeah. She said, they, their faith doesn't seem to cost them anything. I don't, it doesn't, I don't understand. Pastor Pete, can you explain? <sighs> I didn't want to explain because I was feeling so challenged. Verses 3 and 4. Nehemiah's immediate response to this heartbreaking news is deep, persevering prayer. Verses 3 and 4. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. And when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Can I ask you a challenging question? When was the last time you prayed like that? All night, weeping, mourning, fasting. And if you have prayed like that, was it for yourself or some loved one or was it for someone else? or some other situation, or some nation, because we're about to talk about Nehemiah's great strategy and the great stuff he did for the nation, and we're all going to be like, yeah, I want to do that, I want to be that. But it would not have happened if it had not begun in this moment where his heart is broken, where he turns to God in prayer. He mourns, he fasts. So many of us want the glory story on our spiritual resume, but we are not prepared to get into the private place and allow our hearts to be broken. We want to build up the walls of a generation, but we're not prepared for the walls of our own heart to be broken down. And Nehemiah gets with God. He doesn't know he's in the Bible. He's not showing off. His heart is broken by the plight of his people. And he mourns and fasts and prays. Look how he prays. He prays night and day. It's 24-7. <laughs> you know the story of what's happening through the Persian people. Iran and other countries right now begins at a moment in time. The year is 1967, and an American missionary called Dick Dreyer is in northern Tehran, and God speaks to him. Their mission is seeing very little results, very little fruit. And then God speaks to him and says to him, Dick, I want you to pray eight hours a day, seven days a week, until I tell you to stop. He begins in December 1967 to pray eight hours every day. He treats it like a job. Crying out, not knowing why, having seen little fruit, but his heart is being broken. And then God eventually tells him to stop in April of 1968. And on the day he stops, a man by the name of Reza 
comes to him and says, I want to turn to Christ. I want to trust in Christ. He leads Reza to Jesus. Reza has been smoking two packets of cigarettes a day. The addiction is immediately broken. No more desire to smoke. Reza begins to share his faith with others. Reza is a man who now lives in this area. He can't live in Iran or anywhere near it. Sometimes he's often even here in this church. You you could have been sitting next to him in worship sometimes. Reza has led more than 2,000 people to Jesus. Hundreds of churches have been planted as a result of his faithfulness. And I'm told, in fact, he told me this a few days ago, that when you're interrogated, one of the first questions you're often asked is, do you know Reza? Do you know Sam? That's David Yegnazar's dad. These two men who've given their lives to the Lord are terrifying a government decades after the event because of their faithfulness and their willingness to pay a price. But it began with Dick Dreyer obeying the Lord and praying eight hours a day, seven days a week for months on end. Kayvan, who am I seeing there? Sam. Sam's here. Sam, I've just mentioned, is here. Give us a wave, Sam. This is one of the great heroes of the faith in the world today. Humbly sitting here. He, I shouldn't be speaking. He should be speaking. Kayvan, give us a wave. Kayvan is a, is a brother from Iran. You must ask him his story. Nehemiah in Iran, 2,400 years ago begins to pray night and day. Notice he also fasts. Jesus began his entire ministry with fasting. He said to his disciples, when you fast, not if you fast. On one occasion, the disciples tried to perform a miracle. It didn't work. Jesus came and performed the miracle. The disciples said to Jesus, why? Why couldn't it didn't work when we did it? And Jesus said, this kind comes out only through prayer and fasting. You want to grow in spiritual authority? Learn to fast. I was very challenged about this recently. I was speaking at an event called Spring Harvest, 20, 30,000 people. One of my fellow speakers is a wonderful Nigerian pastor called Pastor Agu. I found out that he'd been fasting for 21 days to prepare for speaking at Spring Harvest. 21 days. I was amazed. I expressed how surprised I was. Forgive me, Lord, but I was like, Spring Harvest. I mean, it's not new wine. (laughs) Pastor Agu looked at me and he said this. He said, you white people don't understand power. You think it's about your notes. 2%. Good content. 2%. 98%. Are you carrying it? Can you impart it? I said, how do you carry it? How do you impart it? He laughed. He said, prayer and fasting. Sacrifice, there is no other way. Ouch. We want to build the walls. We want great spiritual testimonies. You're paying the price. Wildfires, many of us will be there. This time next week, Monday to Wednesday. Come on a Sunday, you don't want to miss Sunday evening, it's going to be incredible. The end of Big Church Day Out, we'll see hundreds give their lives to Christ. It's a magical moment. But many of us have decided we'll fast maybe for a day or so this week and to prepare because we're not, we're serious. We don't want just another Christian knees up. We really, really want to come together 
thousands of us from many churches to contend to fan the flames of the next great awakening. This isn't just a slogan on a Christian conference. We're living for this stuff. And God help us, perhaps we might even be willing to die for this stuff. But we're certainly willing to go without the odd meal for this stuff. And, and you may want to join us. Preparing your heart. You long to see a breakthrough in your kids at wildfires? Maybe you need a fast. You need a breakthrough in your marriage? Have you tried fasting? You want to grow in authority? Are you, are you paying the price? And we're going to put out just a little guide every day on social media for those who are praying and fasting. A little steer. You can follow that. Richard Foster says, more than any other discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. Notice as well that Nehemiah prays with mourning and confession, verses 6 and 7. He says, I confess the sins that we Israelites, after four generations, surely he can go those Israelites. No, he says, we Israelites, including myself and my family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Nehemiah doesn't say, hey, I'm doing okay, but they're in a mess. He says, we're in a mess. He owns the sins of his people. The, you know, it, it's so easy. I, I, I catch this in myself. You read about, you know, the leader in some other kind of church who's been caught in some terrible immorality and something really bad in me can sometimes go, oh, at least it's not our kind of church. And God says, there is no other kind of church. There's only one church. This is not them, it's us. You could look at other churches and say, well, their, their church buildings are empty, but ours is full. There is no other. There is only us. We have to own the sins and the failures and the weaknesses of the church and repent and get on our faces and say, God, have mercy on us. Forgive us. The technical term is identificational repentance. We identify with the failures of others. You know how to do this, because we're all really good at identifying with the successes of others and claiming those, right? Nehemiah was such a man of prayer. We're going to look at what a strategist he was, what a practical man he was, what a planner he was. But today I just want to draw this together by helping you understand it all began in prayer. His vision began in prayer. Joy Dawson says, Anything not born in prayer is born in pride. Anything not born in prayer, not just churches, businesses, families, anything not born in prayer is born in pride. He begins his vision in prayer. He continues in prayer. Through the book of Nehemiah, there are nine separate recorded prayers of Nehemiah. And once the walls have been rebuilt... They gather the people from mass prayer meeting. As we think very specifically in the moment about finding buildings for Emmaus Road, I want to say very clearly that our purpose in finding buildings is to establish places of prayer. We've come a very long way from the days of me teaching our children how to stone Stephen. But you know, families need homes. Houses of prayer need houses. You'd have seen that on the founder's studio opposite, the auction board. Well, the auction is tomorrow. And we'll be there. We'll be bidding. We, we, we don't have endless money. 
if we did get it, we'd have to spend a lot of money on it. We've had surveyors in and looked at it, so we've got to limit what we can spend. We, we, we don't, you know, we, we, want, we can't afford to, even if we wanted to, pay crazy money, but if the Lord wants it, if it's there, if not, he's got somewhere else for us. But we are serious. We, we, we need some immediate, because that building is used every day. You know, the, the Alpha and after school clubs and prayer. And, 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 and it makes this building work for us because it gives us breakout space. We lose that, don't know what we do, but the Lord will provide. There are other possibilities that we're exploring if, if we don't win at auction tomorrow. Um, but the Lord cares about buildings. Spiritual rebuilding, but physical buildings. Families need homes, as I say. And, and, and so please pray tomorrow about that. Our building, ultimately, we know that you know, we've grown to the size that we have as a church. We probably are going to need a, a, a venue, not just that, but something much, much bigger at some point where everyone can come together. And, you know, but it won't primarily be for that. It'll be primarily be a center from which we can rebuild the city a center of social transformation, a center of training, a center of hospitality, a center of, of equipping, but also a center of prayer. That's our vision. Our vision is to rebuild the city. Why do we want to rebuild the city? So that the city can become the place of prayer. So that the city can become a prayer room. That's the dream. That's what we've seen historically. In the Hebridean awakening, there was one night where the presence of God came so powerfully upon those islands that 75% of those who gave their lives to Christ did so before they even made it to a church meeting because the presence of God was so strong in the streets. During the Welsh awakening, there were times where so many of the miners had given their lives to Christ and stopped swearing that the pit ponies were no longer obeying the, the, the miners because they didn't understand because they were used to being sworn at. That sanctification right there. The, 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 the Wesleyan awakening was the beginning of the first lending banks for the poor. It was the beginning of free education for all. It was the beginning of the abolition of slavery in the British Empire. They didn't just repopulate the church. They totally reinvented this nation around the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the presence of God. That is why we're coming together next week at Wildfires to fan the flames of the next great awakening because the walls of the city are broken down and we are living at such a time. This is our watch. People are leaving churches. Men and women, boys and girls are waking up this morning with no idea that there is a God in heaven who loves them, that Jesus Christ died for them, that, that no idea that there is hope beyond the grave, no no idea that broken marriages can be put back together, that sicknesses can be healed. No idea that there is a hope and a purpose on their lives, that their sexuality can be used for good and not for ill. No idea about the beauty and the colour and the glory of Jesus Christ. And it is not okay. It's not all right. And so like Nehemiah, it begins to affect us. And we get on our faces and cry out to God and we mourn and we fast and we confess. And then we get practical and make plans and conspire. And together with God on our side, Nehemiah tells us we can change the destiny of nations. One day we'll look back and say this was a great little pregnancy. But then it all began. It begins in prayer. Sorry, if you're a visitor here, I don't always yell. Like, 
I'm not, I'm not, yeah. There's, there's always a couple of people who want more yelling, but there's a few going, I've got a migraine, I had a heavy night last night. I did well just to get to church, I'm sorry. But look, if we can't get passionate about this stuff, and I want to be honest, I have come back for, from the last week with our brothers and sisters in Elam, and I'm deeply challenged. My comfort is being afflicted. And I don't want to put a heavy thing on you, but if you're sensing that already in yourselves, if you're sensing that stirring of the Spirit, I pray that this series is going to really help you. I wonder if God is calling you to look at new areas. He's stirring your heart with a new call. Maybe God's calling you to contend in prayer, to fast, to repent, to grow in authority. Let's just finish with a word of prayer, just to where we've overrun. It's entirely my fault. Lord Jesus, stir us, we pray. Challenge us, we pray. Disrupt our comfort. Teach us, Lord, to pray, to contend. Lord, we long to see the walls of our city rebuilt. We ask that you would use us. Amen.